Are you wanting to create a highly prosperous photography business doing what you love? Or maybe you have a great business already and want to up your game? Then you're in the right place. Master craftsman photographer Lucy Dumas and her guests are here to support you on your journey. Now here's your hostess and tour guide, Lucy. Color is my day-long obsession, joy, and torment. (laughs) That's a quote by the famous painter Claude Monet. And another great quote, art washes away from the soul the dust of everyday life. That's by Pablo Picasso. And welcome, everybody, back to The Profitable Photographer, or if you're here for the first time. Ooh, I got to take a breath on that. Anyway, if you're here for the first time, I hope you enjoy and I hope you listen to uh, the other 180 plus episodes. Also, you want to check out something new, which is my YouTube, YouTube, YouTube channel. I'm now posting these as videos or audio videos if I get too tongue-tied like I just did. <laughs> So the reason for the quotes today is because we're going to talk about all things copyright as artists and creatives and photographers. One of those issues that there's a lot of misinformation and also situations where my favorite organization, Professional Photographers of America, has done a lot to protect our rights. So please check out the YouTube channel. I love feedback and As I said, if you listened last week, my love language is words of affirmation. So to keep me going with this Mostly a Labor of Love podcast, uh, please give me some feedback. And even if it's a little, I can take it. All right. I want to welcome our guest, Luke Bollet. Did I pronounce that right, Luke? Yes, yes. Yes, because it's French and French-Canadian, although he was raised in... Georgia and the South. Let me tell you a little about Luke. He's worked in the nonprofit organization management industry, it's a mouthful, and the political sphere with five years of experience as a lobbyist on the state and federal levels. More recently, he spent his time in the intellectual property sphere representing the interests of professional photographers. Luke is currently the Government Affairs Manager for the Professional Photographers of America, and represents our interests across the country in state, federal agencies, and on Capitol Hill. So welcome, Luke. Thank you for being on my show, and thank you for everything that you do for us. Of course, Lucy. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, Glad to be here. Yeah. So that was kind of a mouthful. So can you share what that really means, um, what your job is and such? Yeah, of course. For the past three years, uh, I've been the government affairs manager at Professional Photographers of America. And the roles and responsibilities associated with that are advocating for professional photographers on Capitol Hill, on the state level, and with federal agencies. So if there's an issue going on in, say, the national parks, then we Mm -hmm. would notify the various officials at the national parks to try to rectify whatever issue it is and then go to the congressional level, whatever oversight that they're able to offer over the federal agency, then we contact them as well and make sure that uh, federal law is being upheld and constitutional rights are being respected, in, in particular freedom of speech, which is what photography is protected under. Oh, so where my mind went when you said federal parks, was issues around our rights to photograph? Yeah, absolutely. So your your ability to, to photograph uh, is protected un, under um, the same protections as freedom of speech. Uh, and there's you know, freedom of the press as well. Uh, so that's an entirely separate uh, freedom. But in sort of separate of that, there's also a historical tradition of photography being done in the parks ever since before the parks even existed. Mm-hmm. So you have you know, a, a litany of, of famous photographers who captured the national parks, which nature photography really wasn't, you know, the, most people were capturing people. Mm-hmm. So much photography about nature and capturing nature was really what I think drove a lot of people to the national parks and seeing these magnificent geological features 
and unique things that our nation has to offer um, drove a lot of people to the national parks. And then I think, you know, it was a contributing factor to our own president, Teddy Roosevelt, mm-hmm. who was very influential on the national parks uh, and, and, and their incorporation and, and bringing more into under that umbrella as areas where the public can, can go and recreate and photograph mm-hmm. uh, uh, w- without any sort of you know requirement of fees being paid as you know as long as the impact that is being exhibited on it on the park is no different than any other individual who travels in on their own two feet or goes to a parking lot and you know pays the requisite fee for the use so how does that work if someone wants to do let's say family portraits in a national park i know there's in wyoming is it wyoming where yep. the Grand Tetons are, yep. there's a big controversy. One of my coaching yeah. clients, that's her main uh, place that she does family portraits. So mm-hmm. how does that fit in with the freedoms, freedom of speech? Yeah, so absolutely. And, and that's one of the issues that we, you know, sort of contended with the, the Grand Teton National Park is uh, we, we notified them of you know federal law existing federal law and where uh where that stands um with regards to federal law federal statute that clarified you know non-impactful photography uh shouldn't require a permit mm. uh, and and thus there's also you know federal statute um which was a is a case uh, I believe it's price fee bar if I'm, my memory serves me correctly uh where it established that videography can be done in the park without any, you know, because someone's making a profit off of the videography, it shouldn't require any sort of royalty to the national parks, mm-hmm. as long as the the videography wasn't, you know, impactful. Uh, you know, someone bringing in a camera with their own two hands is, you know, no different really than someone walking in on their own two feet with, uh, you know, a hiking stick in in their in their hand. Mm-hmm. Oh, even if you're posing people in an area where other people are walking and so forth, that is permissible. And they were trying to charge fees for that. Is that? Yeah. So the national parks were looking to charge a 3% royalty on revenue that was made in the park. Uh, And then there was a sliding scale to that. And then there's a a, a number of. Oh, crap. Yeah. (laughs) And, and this isn't just Grand Teton National Park. There were other national right. parks that were, you know, doing the same sort of thing. And they were looking at changing um, the standard for commercial photography, their definition. Uh, and they were looking to treat photographers as a commercial vendor who operated in, in the park. So, for example, like a kayak rental vendor who operated in the national park and they rent out kayaks for individuals um, they wanted to treat them in the same category as as a photographer who walks into the park a family you know their their uh, studio might be on main street of jackson hall for example mm-hmm. uh tourist comes into their shop says hey i would love a headshot from for my linkedin um in grand teton mm-hmm. uh, and they say oh well you know that's great um like you know fantastic and then you go to the national park there's no real uh they wanted to also treat them as guides too. So uh, they were wanting them to go through a permitting process, the same as a hiking guide and also require CPR certification, um, a name badge, um, uh, you know, it's, you know, like identifiable clothing as like a, you know, I'm photographer, here's my vest and here's my name badge and, and, and here's my CPR certification and here's my liability insurance, which clarifies I have, you know, coverage inside the national park by which there, I, we haven't come across an insurance agency that could even give a reasonable fee for uh, giving insurance for a photographer over liability in, in the national park. And wow. there's, there's so many dangerous features in the national park to then put that burden yeah. on the straps of a, of a photographer oh uh, in the same areas that the general public goes. And there's, mm. and the, you know, it's not as if they're, going off into the bush and uh, into unaccessible areas of the park, areas where the public doesn't generally gather. They're in the same areas as you would bring, you would bring a family of four or a family of 10. It's not as if they're skirting, you know, admission fees 
they're both paying fees. The photographer has probably has a national pass to get unlimited visits to the park. And then the, uh, then the patron has to pay their fee. So it's no different as someone walking in and taking a photo with their phone and then a bunch of other photos and then possibly putting it up on their, on their business page or, or their personal Facebook in the same way as a photographer with a handheld camera that might be a little larger, which does draw attention. And that's primarily the the issue. Yeah. So besides the inconvenience and the financial burden to photographers, I'm thinking about how then park rangers would become police. Exactly. And how terrible that would be too, to instead of being a part of preserving and being those guides and everything else that park rangers do for them to, you know, become these entities that we're hiding from or that are like the enemy instead of our friends. I mean, all around, that's such a terrible idea. (laughs) Right. There's a a litany of issues and and I can certainly go down the line, but one of, one of the, you you primarily, you hit the point on the head where it it makes rangers to be the, the enforcers of this rather arbitrary system. Right. Um, and it takes away from the otherwise impactful things that individuals do in the park. Right. Which, you know, disturbing wildlife, uh, modifying features, removing features, going off trail into areas that are uh, off limits to the right. general public. Right. And education. Right. So PPA came to the rescue and got that squashed. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So what we did is uh, we notified the National Park, first of all, um, of of the law, um, where it currently stands. Um, and then we also uh, contacted Senator Barrasso, um, who was the, the ranking member of the Senate um, committee um, overseeing the Department of Interior. Um, so it's it covers. Forgive me, I'm there's oh, there's a lot of committees uh, on the federal yeah, level. Yeah, we don't um, need to know all of that. Just the specific one. But we contacted his office, and and he so in fact is the senator in Wyoming. So it was mm. his own it was his own backyard, and so he was very ready to be in, involved on this issue. And mm. you know we clerk we sent a letter with four hundred. Um, businesses and we coordinated with a local with a local group of photographers who are being all being affected um, by this and we notified them here were the the small businesses in your state that are all going to be affected by this permitting system and and a lot of the requirements would also create a measurable impact on that foot traffic that happens inevitably with the storefront photography business mm-hmm. uh, they with the permit wait times it it was so obtrusive that how would you ever get a permit you know on the same day as someone walking into your business right uh and and so that was also just another issue sort mm-hmm. of com- combined in that regardless of the uh, you know the the fees that they're looking to charge regardless of the percentage um right. I mean, the, you could separate each of these issues entirely and make your own case for it yeah so when people say, oh, PPA, you know, I didn't get anything out of it. I often tell them, you have no idea what you've gotten out of PPA, even if you didn't join. So just like when I pay my taxes to the state, I try to remember that that goes to roads and schools and things that I benefit from. And when I'm, well, now I'm a lifetime member, but when I paid my PPA dues, I thought about those things behind the scenes that we don't see that for 150 years, this organization has been enhancing the lives and protecting photographers. So, you know, I'm glad I read my PPA magazine and, and uh, read that article so that I could ask you more about it today. It was just one of those lucky coincidences but thank you what i really want to talk about and thank you for that um, of course the copyright issue and absolutely yeah so the way that i ended up connecting with luke is a lot of times at lunchtime i watch uh judge marilyn million on the people's court 
And there was a wedding photographer that was suing a bride, um, or it might have been a birthday party, but it was an event. And she had sent some sneak peeks, but in her contract, it was spelled out that you are not allowed until you've paid in full to post photographs on any social media or print. It was like line by line and she had an initial and sign and the defendant had not paid her balance, but posted everywhere. And I was thinking, oh, she's going to win this case. I wonder what the award is going to be. But the case ended with no award because the photographer had not registered. And I think I jumped ahead a little bit. We didn't used to be able to sue in small claims court. And you're going to share more about that. But I was baffled because I thought that in the new laws, we didn't have to do that. So I called up PPA and said, I want to know if I need to tell uh, Judge Million that she was wrong or understand why she was right. And so Luke and I had a great conversation. So I would love to have you share about copyright issues in the past and then what PPA did for 10 years to change it for us. So, and copyright in general. So our, our photography, you know, when we take a photograph, is it copyrighted automatically? You know, what do we have to do? So right, right now, uh, under copyright, uh, you do, when you snap a photo um, with, with your finger, that moment that you capture that image, that fixed expression, um, in a, a fixed expression in a tangible medium is how the Copyright Office des- defines mm. uh, photography uh, or, or copyrighted works. And the moment you capture it, it is your copyright. But in order to access your copyright, it has to be registered. And essentially, that is proving the ownership of the work. So if you end up in a situation of a copyright infringement, um, in order to prove uh, essentially that that work is yours and that you have the ownership over the copyright, you have to get the image registered with the copyright office. And for uh, many, many years, um, decades, frankly, um, uh, there was the, the issue of essentially being unable to access that right of copyright protection mm-hmm. if the damages didn't meet the requisite uh, cost of filing in federal court and proceed and pursuing the case to its uh, conclusion. Okay. And uh, so what for the better part of the last decade, PPA has done uh, our main legislative priority was the passage of the case act. And the case act was the copyright alternative and small claims enforcement act. And that uh, essentially created uh, a small claims tribunal in the copyright office, which set a cap of damages uh, at $30,000 for multiple infringements and $15,000 for one infringement. And then there's also a smaller claims claims, uh, system, which is uh, up to $5,000 for an infringement. So it puts caps on damages uh, to incentivize participation in the small claims process for both parties rather than going through the federal process. Uh, which can be uh, expensive, time-consuming, um, and incredibly complex with the various legal arguments that both sides can can use to either uh, attack a copyright's validity. Um, one of the things that they'll go after is the way it was registered or the truth of the registration. They'll go after whether or not it was published um, or go after the publication date to invalidate the registration, which does happen from time to time. Okay. So when we talked, my understanding was, let's take the case, the people's court case. Mm-hmm. She hadn't registered those because back in the day, we were told that we should register everything, every single photograph we ever did. And like every month, put that in there and nobody did that. And nobody now is doing that. So the woman who took the photographs uh, was 
my understanding from you, if before she filed the lawsuit, which of course people's court isn't action. Well, anyway, that's another issue, but she filed it as a regular lawsuit and people's court picked it up. Mm-hmm. Then you register before you file the lawsuit. Is that, is that what you're talking about? Cause it sounded to me like you said, uh, it needed to be registered before the violation. So can I get some clarity? Yeah, absolutely. So there's kind of a, there's kind of a two part. So you don't necessarily have to register your work prior to the violation, although it does help you considerably to register it prior. Um, and, and, and the reason for that is statutory damages in federal court. So right now you have the option of choosing statutory damages or actual damages in a federal proceeding. And statutory damages are defined by statute. It's a, it's a uh, penalty and um, I want to say it's up to $150,000 uh, per infringement. Um, and then there's the actual damages, which you, in the higher level uh, infringements, you see the, the millions of dollars of uh, awards. That's the actual damage. That's the actual damages uh, nine times out of 10, because what they're measuring is the actual impact of the infringement. So if someone pirates a movie, and then they sell uh, $100,000 worth of tickets from that, then the actual damage would be the $100,000 uh, that was caused. And, and being able to measure that is a somewhat complicated process because it's not necessarily hypothetical. It relies on receipts. But, okay. but let, let's talk about the smaller, you know, real world for us as photographers. Mm-hmm. So in the small claim system under the CASE Act, the CCB, uh, you can file at the same time as registering your image and you can uh, reach a conclusion in the case. You can do that effectively just as someone else who had um, registered it prior uh, to to the infringement. Okay. And then I thought you said something about the award needed to be and maybe that was in the the federal courts rather than small claims um, that you needed to show how much you were damaged. And I could have that, you know, could be misunderstanding. But in the so in this woman's case, even though, you know, and I'm sure this woman learned a lot now about her business, but the the woman only only owed her a few hundred dollars. And of course, she won her case on that, but not the copyright violation. So, am I hearing you right that somewhere between five and thirty thousand dollars could have been awarded if she had done everything right and registered it? Is that? It's not just your direct financial. It's hard to show a financial. Yeah. So outside of the people's court, if she was to if she was to file in, in the CCB then she would be entitled up to $30,000 for multiple infringements. So if, if, it, if there were you know, two brochures made, uh, f- for example, from this infringement, then those would be two infringements. Okay. So probably more applicable uh, to a lot of my listeners is, let's say, a wedding venue. And, mm-hmm. and the bride received all the photographs and allowed the venue to use them for advertising without the photographer's permission, then that is a case where she could like, A, she could negotiate and, you know, make a, get a, get a good uh, relationship and referrals from that vendor. But outside of that, she could take it to small claims court, register the images, then take it to Mm -hmm. small claims court and depending on what the vendor did with the images, the up to $30,000 could be received from the wedding venue. Is that, am I on track with that? Perfectly clear. Yep. <laughs> um, you know, there's certainly a process to the CCB, but yeah, you articulated it perfectly. What's CCB again? Uh, so Copyright Claims Board. Okay. 
with the your background of you're in Atlanta, right? The PPA headquarters. Mm-hmm. So yep. you know you're in that corporate world. <laughs> so those letters and things are uh, maybe more natural for you. So anyway. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Please uh, ask me to clarify any any acronyms I throw out there. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So the, the CCB is is the Copyright Claims Board, which is made up of three judges, and those are copyright experts who've been uh, either general counsels or uh, in the copyright field as uh, copyright registers or somehow affiliated, but they're experts in copyright. Uh, okay. litigation and, okay. and copyright infringement. So, so the benefit to that is is that instead of going to a federal judge who deals with many other different kinds of cases, financial crimes, um, uh, you know, other federal crimes, which are, you know, gruesome, you're at a much better, uh, in a much better position, I think, because you're articulating this in front of three people who deal with copyright all day, and they've been doing it for decades. Versus a federal judge who deals with a, a bunch of other issues other than copyright, and you see this all the time, where federal judges get copyright cases wrong, mm-hmm. where uh, where they'll be appealed and then it'll go the other way, and then it'll be appealed again, and it might go the other way, and then it'll be appealed, and then it, it might turn into a Supreme Court case. But there are many, many cases where uh, federal judges do get copyright issues issues wrong because the 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 there's such a variance of legal arguments that you can that defendants can make, um, which can, you know, sort of slide uh, thread the needle um, of you know fair use. Okay, I'm confused now because mm-hmm. I thought we were saying uh, so that I could sue somebody locally and just go in front of local judges for a copyright violation in small claims court. But now it's sounding like the CCB is where you file, but it's still small claims court. Uh, like it is, Right. So, so all, all copyright ha- has to be heard in, either in federal court or now in the small claim system. It, the, the people's court kind of gave it, you know, a, a somewhat inaccurate representation of how a copyright case would be pursued. You sure. know, it kind of was a mix of, a contract of a contractual dispute because it said in the contract, I promise not to essentially infringe on this. So it was in a way a copyright case, but it wasn't necessarily. So so let's take yeah. I did a wedding, my bride got the files, she shared them with a wedding venue, and they're using them in their advertisement. So what do I do then? Where do I go? So a wedding uses your, uh, infringes on your work just off the bat with whatever infringement. Um, I certainly wouldn't discount talking to an intellectual property attorney just off the bat. Um, and, and, you know, because there is a lot that can be done in, in discovery, which an attorney can help with in obtaining uh, financial records or other significant pieces of evidence that can contribute to to the decision of federal court or small claims court because you don't want to go to small claims court and then figure out you know you, you could have accessed $120,000 worth of infringements if you had only gone through the federal court process or you know a significant higher damages but if a local venue a smaller case of infringement if you know it's going to be smaller um you know less than $30,000. Um, if the images aren't registered, it's going to be in your best interest to register those as soon okay. as possible. Um, all of the images that were infringed on, um, okay. it's going to be in your best interest. Okay. Then do I file in small claims court or have to go to that CCD? So the CCB, it would be uh, in the CCB. You don't need an attorney for, for the CCB, for the, the small claims court CCB. Um, copyright um, system. Uh, you can do it all pro se on your own, um, and, and we actually have a you know a guide on on PA's website for um, it describes the copyright claims board, and we have a 
of FAQs for for that. And then we also provide links to all the various ways of either proceeding in, in the court um, that are on the Copyright Office's website and you know that uh, shows the process for how to complete that to fruition. Okay. But so this is different uh, than just my local small claims court. Yeah, so it does happen from time to time that small claims courts do hear uh, cases of copyright-related issues, but in essence, they're only going after the contractual dispute, which is the, you violated this line, which said, I wouldn't violate your copyright. Um, but if it's sort of attached to that, then you have to prove that a, a small claims court judge who has a, probably a, a somewhat foggy uh, relationship with copyright just off the bat. It's not something they deal with every day. Okay. Um, then they're going to not necessarily know that the copyright in question isn't yours or is yours. Mm -hmm. And so they want that proof of ownership. Um, if you're able to prove the ownership, then some small claims courts might entertain a copyright related issue with a contractual dispute um, you don't necessarily know until you get there but a small claims court they're not going to get into 99 nine times out of 100 they're not going to go into the copyright related violations of okay well it was on how many brochures and then that amounted to this amount of money mm -hmm. uh, that can be collected on the copyright it would just be related to the the, the contractual violation. So sometimes they, they do get solved and some damages are awarded. Um, I have anecdotally heard of that happening, mm -hmm. but um, as far as a singular just copyright violation, you're, you're not going to uh, be able to effectively, you know, get a conclusion with those on a, at your local, you know, court or county court. So, so then we would contact PPA and say, ah, this happened, where do I go? And you guide us to the CCB with some checklists. How do we know what to do? Yeah, so we have all the resources on our website right now. Um, we have a, a copyright claims board um, white paper, which goes in, into depth on everything that I'm describing and, 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 in, and in greater detail. Um, in the FAQs, it also gives a very um, you know, high-level understanding of, of the CCB, and then the, the white paper goes into a little bit more depth, and then um, and then it also links back to all of the Copyright Office's website, which is uh, very verbose and kind of long, which is why we created our own materials for an, an easier just understanding of, of the CCB. But okay. if you do encounter a situation uh, of a copyright infringement, um, then uh, I, I would certainly encourage you to take a look at the resources we have um, on our website, which are um, also the copyright infringement assistance tool, which you answer a few questions and then uh, it provides you with the list of resources that we have, which include a cease and desist notice, mm -hmm. a um, DMCA takedown notice, which is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act um, notice. And that was uh, created so you can notify a internet uh, service provider um, host that they're hosting infringed content. Um, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm sure uh, some people have dealings with that when you see a, you know, a YouTube video and it says this video has been removed because of the copyright owner. Right. Um, so that's the, that's the DMCA right there. So that's another way to get copyright content down. What does DMCA stand for again? Uh, Digital Millennium Copyright Act. I also know from experience that when when we have challenges, the PPA, I'm not sure if it's you or someone else, when we're a member, we can make a phone call and um, even like get some guidance on the first steps. I had a situation where someone yeah. took the copy that I'd spent four months perfecting for my website update changed a few words. And sadly, this was someone I thought was a friend that just lives two miles from me. And she insisted it was different. And she had a right 
And so I, and this goes back several years, but I contracted PPA and he took a look at it and said, it's clearly derivative. And derivative means mm-hmm. that it is a violation of my copyright as like words are copyrighted too, correct? Yep. Yeah, not yep. just like the, <laughs> but that, right. um, yeah. and it, it helped me at least be able to say to her, you know, so-and-so at PPA looked at it and said, clearly it's derivative. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I at one point, because she never took it down, I just decided to sort of gift it to her and and rewrite <laughs> mine because some some things are not worth the inks. But it was so nice to have somebody to talk to and say, am I crazy? Is this okay? And, and, and I'm, I'm I'm happy to have those conversations. Uh, you know, and any question related to the you know the materials that we provide, um, or you know what steps should be need to be taken to, yeah. to go forward with the with, with the situation. Yeah. I just want to you know preface I, I can't you know provide any sort of legal advice. Um, I'm preface I'm not a lawyer, but you know I, I do deal with this on a very regular basis. Mm-hmm. So you know I'm happy to answer questions related yeah. to and any these copyright issues even just to be able to say you know i contacted professional photographers of america and their suggestion was you know fill in the blank or you know just to give us that support in ways to think about uh preferably negotiating with the made-up wedding venue for example definitely because it's far easier to to rectify those issues and you know perhaps create a better relationship um, because of a, a sour situation. Um, and, you know, it could be advantageous for, for the both of you. Uh, and I'm not necessarily saying you should ignore copyright infringement, but um, there, there's a bit of strategy to it that can make an otherwise bad situation better. Right. And it, it could be a way to, to make a great connection with a vendor who really didn't understand you know, I think most people don't understand that what they're doing is not okay when they violate copyrights. So, okay, is there anything else? Well, I've got you. So just to reiterate, it took PPA 10 years. How many hours do you think, <laughs> if you could just make a wild oh, guess, did PPA devote? And How many times did you your team go to Washington? Like, what was that like? to be literally fighting, not physically, but fighting to make it easier for individuals to have success and have the right to uh, take somebody to court? Well, I I would say it was, if you measured across just a per person hour basis, you know, it was certainly in the millions of hours um, of uh, the letter writing campaign, all of the members who wrote letters to their representatives and senators, uh, we wrote hundreds of thousands of letters mm-hmm. um, or uh, we collectively, myself, uh, you know, every member who and, and non-member um, who wrote a letter to the, the copyright office. Uh, I mean, that represented uh, out hundreds of thousands of hours, um, uh, not just on a an individual basis, but David Trust, uh, who's the CEO of PPA, uh, he worked on this issue, you know, for over a decade mm. of you know him himself individually on on Capitol Hill trying to get uh, this issue rectified. And uh, finally, you know, more and more people started to catch on and uh, carried the message. And then finally, it got to you know a coalition of people that were that were vying for for this to to be fixed. Yeah. And that coalition, because what I remember is that you got some senators, Congress people on board, like yeah. you're working with. Yeah. We had, we had, I want to say 20 Senate sponsors, mm. which is the fifth of the Senate. Wow. Uh, and then we had, and then we had, I don't know how many co-sponsors in the house, but the the vote was 410 to six in favor of the case act wow uh, which is which is just unheard of because uh most votes like that just go by voice vote if the rest of the members know that 
it's going to pass. They, they just will we'll just let it pass. Um, but they wanted to do a voice vote. And so th- they actually got a tally of everyone who wanted to, to say no. And there were only six of them. Um, oh. And we really don't think it was anything that was a fundamental disagreement of the bill, but we think it was just a general disagreement of uh, perhaps, you know, legis- legislation, you know, maybe they thought there was going to be some expenditure of, of the federal government, but we really haven't seen that at all because if anything, this, the small claims court is going to increase registrations for photography because now people have a, an option to go through a system which doesn't cost nearly as much as federal court. And it's wow. $40 um, for the initial filing fee. And then uh, to the total filing fee is an additional 60. So it's a hundred dollars for the entire, for the entire case. So it's not, you know, big, big money we're, we're, we're talking about here. I mean, it is, you know, like hundred bucks is nothing to, to scoff at, but uh, in order to access your rights, um, then it's, you know, it's the corporate office has to charge something in order to. Right. Cause you got to run the office and, and uh, right. Have people put a little bit of their own skin in the game to not just be frivolously, right. you know, suing everybody. Right. And, and not a non frivolous case as, as well. Right. Um, and, and, in their mind, um, you know, cases that have all cases that have merit. Right. Right. Oh, Luke, this was very interesting. And you definitely got that. Now, what's your background? What's your schooling? You're very good at explaining detail, detail, detail. So did you go to law school? Was it like, what is your no, no. education background or just your background background? Yes. So I, I didn't go to law school. Um, I graduated with a political science degree from University of Georgia uh, in in 2017. Uh, after that, I went to work for a contract lobbying firm um, on the state level, just down the street in, in Capitol Hill, um, Georgia, uh, Georgia Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's where I really got my feet wet and started reading bills and was a junior lobbyist working at a firm for uh, multiple clients. And it was uh, almost like death by fire hose of just <laughs> legislation. Yeah, uh, just I, I mean, every day I was re- I was reading I was reading bills, and immediately coming out of college and doing that was just you know, like I mean, I felt like I was where the sausage was being made, and so mm-hmm. that just really kickstarted my my drive and uh, and and vigor for advocating for people, um, and uh, and trying to effectuate positive change uh, through the wheels of government. So I worked for there for two years. And then, I mean, before that, I was a photographer and videographer for the Georgia Bulldogs football team. So I, uh, I, I did coaches film for, for Kirby Smart and uh, Mark Richt for, for two years each. You have a heart for our industry. Oh, oh, I certainly do. I certainly do. And I still do photography to this day. I'm not a professional photographer by any measure, but I still do it, you know, for a hobby and, and mm-hmm. just personal uh, gratification, really. Um, but I do have that, I would say, you know, photographer mindset, I think that still, that helps me every day, um, when I'm advocating for photographer related mm-hmm. issues. And, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's such a rewarding experience to yeah. be able to, to, to help this industry, uh, after working in it while well, as a student, you know, not certainly a, um, you know, a small business owner, but still the passion for the arts has really never left me. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, because one person can make a difference, especially when then you're surrounded by other people who have similar passions and commitment and you work together to team. But, you know, I get that your your background, your experience, your your drive to support us has made a big difference. And I know that people listening to this episode are greatly expanded so oh thanks now just really quick this is primarily in the united states correct so if someone in canada or australia or guatemala violates our copyrights do we have any standing in correct just the u.s yeah currently there's no mechanism right now for that unless uh 
unless the country in question uh, recognizes United States copyright by uh, by treaty. And there are, there are ways to get your copyright registered in other countries, of course, but um, by default, it is it is increasingly difficult to get copyright matters um, solved across uh, countries because uh, most countries take their own laws. I mean, because the violation is does happen in that other country. Now, if they were to violate it and somehow be related to a U.S. based entity, then you could pursue that. Mm. Um, but if if the infringement only happens on uh, overseas or um, you know, outside of the country, then it is increasingly difficult to to get copyright matters litigated. Yeah, which is now that it's like one world. Uh, I imagine in the future, at some point, maybe there'll be ways uh, yeah. to work on it. Particularly, and this is about trademark violation. Is I've trademarked profitable photographer, mm-hmm. and uh, when I tried to get that with I don't know if it was Instagram or YouTube or something. When I searched, I found some people who use the same trademarked name, the profitable photographer or profitable photographer, but they're in Australia. And so mm-hmm. it's too bad, so sad, even though in our industry, you know, their target person that would be searching for that is the same as mine because you know we, we don't have boundaries with what we're doing um so mm-hmm. interesting times De- definitely and i do think that there's going to be you know mm-hmm. a, a a path moving forward for world copyright and world um trademark and currently there is world trademark um but it is uh, not as easy as it is on the federal level to to get you know that registered as as yeah. a trademark. And I'm not Coca Cola. Uh, I'm not yeah. you know, going to lose billions of dollars because somebody else shows up in a search under the profitable photographer in you know whatever. Um, but it just and I've when I found it in the U.S. where someone just didn't know that this was trademarked, and I've said, hey, can you changers they've always been like oh sure you know no problem okay do you have any last thing that when we hang up you'd be like oh man i wish i'd shared this one thing or just a parting thought yeah uh so i would just say uh one the most important thing i think photographers can do right now is register your work um and it, it doesn't have to be register every work um, but if you do have a public facing image and it's out there, you know, sort of in the ether and you sell it to other companies uh, and you market it heavily, then I would certainly encourage you to, to register that work. Um, that way you can collect those statutory damages if you do have to go to federal court and be able to collect a higher amount of damages potentially if it does get infringed on a very you know, regular basis. So this image back here, the family portrait, see most of it, that was a loan collection. And I've had people over the years ask if they can use it for their brochures and things. So I'm guessing that would be one that I'd want to register because it is one of my iconic images that I'm known Mm -hmm. for. And that clearly there's been an interest. There was one that asked permission. I sent them a bill. They never responded. And probably they went ahead and used it anyway, because it was pre, even pre-digital. It goes way back. I don't, well, okay. Anyway, so is that what you're talking about? If something is yeah. an iconic image that yep. clearly could have value for other people beyond like you're not saying every wedding somebody photographs or every right. family portrait, but right. if someone is selling their photographic art, all of that should be copyright. I, I would I would certainly recommend it. Uh, and, and you can register right now 750 images under a single $55 registration. So 
if you do if you have at least one image that you want to copyright you know why not get 749 more images registered right just in that single registration right. so if you just want to get you know a, a bunch of images together um, that you market heavily and that have a higher chance of being infringed then it, it might be in your best interest to get those registered and then at some time in the future um, you would be able to sell that copyright if you choose to and you know mm -hmm. also you can incorporate those copyrights into into a will as well Oh. Uh, and then pass it on to your family um, oh. if they want to either sell it or have royalties off of the future sale of that uh, that image. But those two are are good um, reasons alone to to get certain works registered with the copyright office. Interesting. Well, thank you, Luke. Um, how do people get in touch with you if they have specific questions? Of course. Uh, my email is l-b-o-u-l-e-t at ppa.com. So okay. L is in Lima and then my last name okay. at ppa.com. And then our number is 404-522-8600. Just ask for me. Thank you. Of course. This is great. Thank you uh, Thanks, for Lucy. answering all things copyright and that little side bonus of the um, National Park a situation now just a really quick question yeah at a state level mm -hmm. we have in california there's there's state parks where if i'm doing a family portrait at certain beaches in san diego that are actually state parks those rangers come up and they chase you away so what's the situation with on state levels so for state level um you know we would have to look at those on sort of an individual basis of how they're regulating the photography. If you're regulating all photography, just camera on a phone, camera, uh, you know, in your hand, if it's based on a privacy uh, justification, then that could perhaps be a justifiable reason for violating um, the public's First Amendment to, to photograph on a public place. If it's, uh, you know, gated, perhaps, then... It's a beach. And yeah. they say you have to have a permit to do professional photography on this beach. Hmm. Where so, any Joe Blow with any kind of camera, if they don't think it's professional, you know, they're photographing their kids or the sunset, right. then no, you don't have to have a permit. So... Yeah, I, I would be interested in taking a look at that. Okay. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, just off the face of it, it doesn't sound like they would actually be able to to legally do that. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Because if it is a public park, and yeah. if it's funded by tax money, then mm -hmm. it, it would fall under the same classification as a national park. I would think. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Because this is now, of course, a lot of what happens, at least in my experience or my knowledge, is. They're using the, you know, someone can't come in and film film a movie on that beach without a permit. Right. And they're sort of grandfathering it into, so therefore I can't take a, a family of 10 down to the beach and mm -hmm. photograph on these state beaches in San Diego. And so yeah. what I hear you saying is they might, that might be something, a hill to die on even with San Diego photographers to get some help. Perhaps. Yeah. Uh, especially if, if it's not based on impact, which is, which was the same justification we had in Grand Teton where they're, you know, going after professional photographers, how, whatever that interpretation is in their mind mm -hmm. or commercial photography, then if it's not based on, you know, a bona fide reason that's a, applied across the board, then I could see an opportunity for for that being struck down. Interesting. Okay. Good to know. Maybe we'll get yeah. photographers of San Diego County together uh, <laughs> to do something about it because there's these beautiful beaches that either people are paying a fee or they just they don't know it. And then the ranger comes up and they're very embarrassed because you've got a family there and you can't, you know, everybody's just in town for 
Thanksgiving or for a week on vacation, you can't have a do-over on that. And it's an, it's just an issue. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm not necessarily saying this is something that would, I, would, I would ever encourage, um, but most of these cases involve public entities which actively infringe on constitutionally protected rights until one squeaky wheel decides to initiate the, the, the case. So if someone is given a fine, then that would be perhaps the, that would be the, the justification for, you know, going to a, the, the first requisite judge and saying, this is a violation of, of our, my constitutional right. And then it would be appealed up higher and higher and higher. But it is, you know, it, it's litigation is very expensive. Um, yeah. You know, perhaps a pro bono case can be made. I think it's certainly enticing for a lot of, uh, you know, First Amendment protection uh, lawyers. And there's certainly a lot of IP lawyers out in California Yeah, that, you know, kind of cross that divide of IP and constitutional rights. Um, but I, I certainly think that that's a case which could be mimicked on the same way of Grand Teton. Interesting. So just a little funny, and then I'll let you go. Um, there was a shopping center in downtown San Diego that was beautiful. And I have a client that every year we do a family portrait in a different location. And we knew this building was going to be torn down, sadly. So it was vacant. And he said, I, I want to be photographed in Horton Plaza. So as we moved and I got some photographs, then a guard came up and said, you can't photograph here, which I know legally that, you know, that was private property. So I'm, you know, I'm sure he was, he was right, but there's other places that let you. And so then we, we moved so he couldn't see us. And I did a few more and we kept moving. Well, my client is a lawyer. <laughs> so <laughs> he just said he wasn't embarrassed at all. He was just like, keep working, keep working. What are they going to do? Take <laughs> us to jail? <laughs> and so eventually we got through this mall, got great photographs. And, you know, we laugh about it, uh, about the, you know, but it was really comforting for him to be like, I'm a lawyer. If they do sue us or take us to jail, I'll handle it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, that just reminded me of that. All right. Well, Luke, thank you so much. And everyone remember to stay on wherever you're listening or watching for my little quickie wrap up. Thanks, Lucy. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was so informative. My mind is like kind of boggled. But before I do a little bit of a wrap up, Just a reminder that if you need any support at all, please go to lucydumascoaching.com and check me out now on the YouTube channel, The Profitable Photographer or Lucy Dumas. There's a private Lucy Dumas, doesn't have anything on it much, but there's one where you'll see lots and lots of goodies there. And so let's see, one of the first things we talked about in this way that PPA is supporting us is um, the fight about the right to photograph in national parks. This is something recent that popped up and they did an article in the, the magazine that you will get if you're a member and that we have a right to take photographs as long as we're not wrecking the place in national parks. And at the very end of the conversation, I asked him about state parks and, and he said, we might have a case as portrait wedding photographers or mostly in that regard, when we are chased out or given a fine for photographing in a state park that is, you know, I pay taxes for that park. And so do you, if you're in the U S And then we talked about the passage of the CASE Act, C-A-S-E, that PPA devoted millions of hours if we totaled all the members, um, but countless hours in Washington getting a law changed so that as individuals, we can file 
in a small claim situation if our copyright has been violated on our photographs. And he talked about the importance of before we take any kind of action that we register and it's only $75. I think he said something like that for 750 images. It's called the Copyright Claims Board and PPA is always on our side. And so they would happily help if you've got an individual situation to help you with the steps to take care of it. So that's it for now. And I hope you all have a great uh, rest of your week or month or life. Until next time. Bye. You have been listening to The Highly Profitable Photographer with Lucy Dumas. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share. To connect one-on-one and learn more about our coaching programs, just go to lucydumascoaching.com. Until next time, go have fun photographing and selling your work.